Well, thank you for joining us. My name is Jason Harris, and I'm the senior pastor of Central Presbyterian Church, located in the heart of New York City, which unfortunately has become the epicenter of the coronavirus epidemic. I'm joined today, however, by my very good friend, N.T. Wright. To most of us, Tom Wright needs no introduction. He's a world-renowned scholar, a prolific author, and a retired bishop in the Church of England. N.T. Wright is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, as well as a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University, and the author of over 80 books, including the New Testament in its world. So thank you for making the time for us, Tom. I know that it's a little late there where you- Oh, are it's fine. At, uh, it's always, always good to be with you. And uh, thank you for setting all this up. Absolutely. Well, as we uh, previously discussed, we said that this was a relatively good time because your work would be done for the day and neither of us have had a nightcap yet, although maybe we should have done this conversation over a single malt. That might have been fun, <laughs> but maybe next time. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I recently reflected on the fact that we first met uh, nearly nine years ago. I had uh, just moved to New York City to assume my post at Central and I uh, kid you not, it was literally my first week on the job when I got a email from a friend, a mutual friend of ours based in San Francisco, who said that you had just published uh, another book. This time it was Simply Jesus. And together with your publishers, you were looking to do a little book tour through the US and wanted to make a stop in New York. And so the question to me was whether or not Central would be willing to host you uh, for this lecture. And I recall I had to think about that for perhaps less than <laughs> half a second and uh, quickly said yes. And uh, that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So over the years, we've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time together uh, along with our wives. We've hosted you at Central to speak from our pulpit as well as to give multiple lectures. And so it's, uh, it's a real treat for us to be able to talk to you now. Uh, during this critical time in our lives where uh, the whole world has been affected by this coronavirus. Uh, well, I think um, when we first started hearing reports about the novel coronavirus, we thought uh, that it would go away like many of the other health scares that we've seen in recent years like the Zika virus or H1N1. And most of us assumed perhaps that it would be limited to a particular geographical area and not amount to much. Uh, but we're all a little more than stunned by the way in which this virus has overwhelmed our hospitals, shut down the world economy, and completely altered our way of life. And uh, we, of course, grieve the tragic loss of life. Uh, and at the same time, we're all feeling a bit disoriented. And so in the midst of all this, I think many people are asking big questions, such as where is God in the midst of this pandemic? And where are we supposed to be? How should we respond uh, to uh, this threat to our lives, to our economy, and, and to our health? And so it seems to me that there's a, a number of potential missteps uh, that Christians could make in, in answering those questions or struggling with those issues. And so perhaps it might be good to begin by thinking through what some of those missteps might be. Sure, sure. Here's one, here's one to start us out. Uh, I think I mentioned to you a, a couple weeks ago that in one of my sermons, I, I discussed Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, which he wrote I, in... I, I, read, I read the sermon, much enjoyed it, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, 
I, I was struck by, uh, by Camus' novel. He, he wrote it to be uh, essentially an allegory capturing the reality of the human condition. And yet uh, his description of this, of this plague uh, is uh, rather uncanny when you compare it to what we're all experiencing right now. And uh, through his description uh, of this epidemic, he describes the various ways in which people try to respond to it. Some try to flee the city, uh, some try to make money off the black market, uh, but perhaps he, he shares his sharpest critique for the local priest. And it seems that whenever there's a crisis, there's always some sort of religious leader who delivers a message like the priest does to his congregation. Uh, in which case uh, here, he, he's trying to, to rationalize why this is happening. And so he blames the, the, the citizens of Oran. He says that uh, this has come upon them because they deserved it. This was a punishment from God because of their sins. Although, of course, he says it wasn't for any of his own sins. And uh, certainly, I think there's people today who might be grasping for that same answer as they try to make sense of what's happening to us. They would say, well, perhaps this is a, a punishment from God. It's a punishment for our sins of misusing money or sex or power. Uh, perhaps people on the left might say, well, this is at least a, a warning because we failed to take place, uh, take good care of the, uh, of the environment and the world in which we live. So uh, what would you say to that? Should, should we think of this as a <laughs> as a punishment, well, or is this some kind of warning from God? Yeah, I, had, I wrote a little piece, as you know, um, a month or so ago in Time magazine, they asked me to, just a little 800 word thing. And I, I warned against saying that kind of thing. And immediately I got pushback from people saying, uh, Dr. Wright obviously doesn't read his Bible because if only he looked at the prophet Amos, he would see that Amos says, um, I did this and this and this because you did that and that and that. And this was all to make you turn back to me. And I want to say, yes, there's plenty of passages like that in the Old Testament. Um, there are also passages in the Old Testament which make it quite clear that you can't say that every time. And central among those passages is, of course, the book of Job, um, where the whole point is against Job, comforted to say, Job, it's all your fault, you've been a bad boy, and so naturally this has happened to you. Um, the, the, the reader, Job's, the reader of the book, knows that this is wrong. Job knows that it's wrong, but he can't figure out what's going on. Right. And there isn't really uh, what, what would count for us as a resolution at the end of the book. We're just told, you know, God is great and ultimately he's in charge of this stuff. Um, but it's, it's very puzzling and, and, and so on. But then the thing that really struck me as I was working through that Mm. is that with Jesus, there's a kind of um, a sense that the prophet, Israel's prophetic movement has all got funneled down onto this one point, and that Jesus is doing and saying things which function as warnings to Israel to repent, and that's very clear, you know, when he denounces Bethsaida and Capernaum and so on, because they didn't repent. He's, but, but the signs that Jesus was doing... Um, were, were creative signs, they were healing signs, they were to do with the kingdom of God breaking in, in a good, in a good way. Um, and, and even because it was, you know, Jesus didn't go around doing a repeat of the plagues in Egypt and calling for frogs to come up from the river Jordan or um, killing Herod's firstborn or anything like that. All Jesus was doing was positive signs, and even so the people didn't repent. So the idea of signs 
because of which you should repent. That's there, but in the Gospels, it's kind of changed from what you see in the Old Testament. Um, and there are some interesting bits of to and fro in Jesus' teaching where in John 9, he and his disciples meet uh, a man born blind. And the disciples say, well, was it because he sinned or was it his parents? And Jesus says, no, it wasn't either. It's so that the works of God might be manifest in him. And then, of course, what we then see is the works of Jesus, which has all sorts of Christological uh, uh, interpretation going on. Um, the, the, this, God has allowed this to happen so that the gospel may come through. Now, there are other hints which go the other way, just to be fair and even-handed, if you like. Um, when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda in uh, John 5, he says afterwards, watch out, don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. So Jesus is not denying that there might be a connection between sin and, and sickness or sin and suffering. But then when I pan back from the whole thing and look at the different things or listen to the different voices that I've heard, you're right, some people maybe on the political left would say it's all because we've been destroying the environment and so on. Some, I think, more shrewd voices would say, hang on, this started, as far as we know, in a market in China where they are uh, selling and eating, whether it's bats or pangolins or whatever. Um, these are not domesticated animals um, that have had um, dangerous things bred out of them. These, these are essentially wild animals. And that this may be a, a result of all sorts of sociological things going on. I don't know, and I expect none of us quite know the backstory of how all that happened. But um, one of the many things that then comes out is that the World Health Organization and organizations like that um, are commissioned by um, world bodies, by governments, to make sure that this kind of thing is watched out for and is regulated. And then, so then it becomes a political issue and people are saying, aha, it was all China's fault, and so we got a dump on China. And guess what? We've got other reasons for wanting to dump on China, so let's use this as well. And then other people again are saying, no, 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 it was all America's fault for not doing this and that. But then there's a, all of those are kind of searching for scientific or political explanations, but that's different from saying, and again, I've heard this voice, maybe from people on the American right, it wouldn't be so much the British right. Uh -huh. It's all because of sexual misbehavior, it's because of the gay lobby, or it's because of abortion, or whatever, um, where there's no attempt to make a connection. You know, there's no, nobody saying um, that the fact that you have gay marriages now, there's a causal link between that and the emergence of this. Nobody's saying that. So it becomes a kind of um, deus ex machina, a bit of supernaturalism, that God is angry, so he's just done this. And, and frankly, that sort of thing really troubles me because uh, you stand back and say, hang on, so you're saying that because God is cross with what some Western countries have done about sexual behavior, God allowed this virus to escape from a market or a research laboratory or something in China to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people around the world, all in order to tell those naughty people down the road who we disapprove of, etc. And that's the point at which um, non-Christians listening to this conversation would just say, if that's your view of God, you can keep it. Um, thank goodness I'm an atheist kind of thing. Um, and, and so, uh, but then I'm really interested in the way in which in the New Testament, we don't see 
that kind of explanation being called for. Anyway, I can develop that in a minute. You may want to come back amid some of what I've said because there's, there's all sorts of things going on here. <laughs> I do. Well, I, uh, let me come back to that because uh, I, I think it'll tie into something I want to yeah. ask you in a moment about uh, the Old Testament and how we should be interpreting it in light of the new in the first place. Uh, but l let's tackle a few of these missteps at first and then we'll get to well, sure. what's the right way to tackle some of these issues because I think that we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, confusion and muddled thinking. Uh, sure. so certainly viewing, viewing the pandemic as, as a punishment for our sins or somebody else's can be rather simplistic, yeah. uh, especially for the reasons that you just laid out in terms of how this whole virus uh, made its way around the world. Uh, we can easily play the blame game and that becomes uh, a, a political game as well uh, when, we're, when we're trying to point fingers and, and uh, assign blame for why this has happened to us. Uh, another misstep, it seems to me, is uh, uh, we can interpret all this as uh, some kind of sign that, that, that Jesus is going to come imminently. And again, this might be more of a an American phenomenon than one that you experience in the UK. But according to some recent research in the US, many people look at the headlines in the newspapers and, and they see signs of uh, Jesus' coming based on what they can read off the page and, and view in current events. Many of these people would look to passages like Matthew 24, where the disciples ask Jesus, well, what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. And on the one hand, Jesus responds by telling them not to let anyone lead them astray because they'll hear all kinds of rumors about the end of the world, but don't be taken in by them. But then on the other hand, uh, Jesus does make this comment where he says, there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then in the corresponding passage in Luke, Jesus specifically mentions pestilences. So. What do you think Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24 and, and Luke 21? Now, I personally believe that Jesus told us to be prepared for his coming, but not sure. to try to predict it, because Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour, not even yeah. Jesus himself. But yes. uh, if this isn't a punishment, should we think of this as a sign? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a sign in that sense, no. Um, Jesus is very clear that... Uh, for the coming of the Son of Man, which is a complicated phrase in itself, there will be no signs. He says at one point, it'll be like the days of Noah. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, life going on as normal without any dramatic signs. But there are various different things going on in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The central thing in all three of those passages is the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus has warned Jerusalem that unless it turns from its desperate flight into revolt against Rome, then Rome is going to come and crush it. And the only language you can use for that is what we call apocalyptic language about the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from heaven. Because Jerusalem, this is where the temple is. This is where God has promised to put his name. And like Jeremiah, who used that language of creation going back to chaos, what, what he meant was, if the temple is destroyed, then the unit between unity between God and his people is broken. Um, how can God live with his people without, without the temple? That's a major problem in the Old Testament. So Jesus is wrestling with that issue, and you see it most clearly in Luke 19, when he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's in tears, and he says, if only you'd known the things that make for peace, 
but you've rejected the way of peace and so your enemies will come and destroy you and leave not one stone upon another and it's in the light of that that the disciples ask in luke 21 parallel mark 13 matthew 24 how will we know what's this all about right so when jesus is then talking about wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences he's specifically saying these are not to be taken as signs of an imminent end whether the fall of jerusalem or the ultimate end that this stuff is going to happen and of course only a little bit of knowledge of history ancient history medieval history and church history in general will show that every few years every few decades there are some pretty terrible things going on in the world i think actually my generation the people who were you know baby boomers born just after the war We've had it so easy. We've never had to have a war on our territory. We've never had any major pandemics. I, I'm 71 now. I've never had anything like this in my life. The previous two generations in my family and every other British family had terrible things going on. And people, um, wild people would stand up and say, <coughs> that this is a sign of the end. And uh, like in America, of course, late great planet Earth and all that sort of subculture. Um, for, I don't know why that's taken root in America the way it has, but it's certainly been very big. Excuse me. And so I really want to say, no, this is not a sign of Jesus' return. That is not to say that Jesus couldn't come back at any time, because he constantly says it could be at any time. But from all that we see, it's just as likely to be on a perfectly ordinary day when nothing much is happening, um, rather than when everything's going crazy and wild. But the, the thing that came across to me very strongly a few weeks ago when I was starting to think this one through was that actually Jesus gave us this prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, which and most of us pray every day, sometimes more than once uh, every day. And the Lord's Prayer already is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. And it's also a prayer for forgiveness. So the idea that we need special signs to say, oh, now it's going to happen, or oh, now it's time to repent and be forgiven. No, we are kingdom people every day. We are for forgiveness people every day. And of course, God being God, if God thinks we need a push, a kick, a shove, something to alert us, God can do that as well. But that's not the norm for the Christian. The norm for the Christian is to stick close with Jesus and pray his prayer. And in that, these things will be taken care of. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of thinking about it, because uh, that's the other thing that you're starting to, to see uh, from various religious leaders around the country and uh, and around the world. Uh, they'd say, well, th this isn't necessarily a punishment. It's not necessarily a sign of the end. Uh, but if nothing else, it is a, it's a wake-up call. And yeah. uh, they would say that especially during times of crisis, God wants people to examine themselves and to repent of everything that displeases him. And yeah. they may even be hopeful that if large enough numbers of people seek the Lord during this time, that it'll lead to a, a kind of spiritual awakening. And uh, I, I think what I hear you saying, and this, this is sort of what I sense too, is that uh, in some ways that seems a little bit uh, too convenient uh, and it misses the point, which is that uh, all time is a good time for us to, to heed the Lord's call upon our lives and to turn to him in faith. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's something that we should be doing 
every day. Uh, I, I think I think that's God right. Has sent this plague to call us to repent. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember when the first Gulf War happened. I was working as a college chaplain here in Oxford in one of the Oxford colleges, <clears throat> and the next uh, after the war began. Um, there was kind of panic in the college. A lot of students were glued to the television all the time. And some of them had friends who were in the military and, and it was just taking over them. And the teachers and the chaplains just had to say, look, um, sorry, these things happen. You've got to get on with your studies. There's nothing to be gained by watching the television all the time. And people were coming into college chapel in droves. The services were full. People wanted to pray. But when it was all over, a few weeks later, and the Gulf War finished, sadly, not many of those people <laughs> were still to be found coming to church. Um, now, at the moment, we've got this fascinating situation, which is like a kind of accidental sociological experiment, where because the churches are locked, a lot of churches, as I know you're doing at Central, are running online services, and um, clergy are celebrating Eucharists with just family members in their home and people are being invited to, to tune in. And they're reporting, I'm getting reports from around the UK certainly, that more people are tuning into those services than would normally show up to church on a Sunday morning in the first place. Now, that's fascinating. I'm thrilled about that. And maybe some of them will turn to God and maybe that will last. Um, I'm not holding my breath. Um, I will pray for them and, and hope, but these things come and go. And I think to latch on to special events as though, aha, this one will solve our problem. Um, life isn't normally like that. And I think the steady tread, what's that? Is it a line of Eugene Peterson, the long, the long, uh, a, a long road of a beat, long path uh, of a beat? Along the beat in the same direction. The same direction. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the calling that's the vocation um as i say of course anything that alerts us i mean i have to admit i have prayed more in the last weeks about the prospect of my own death than i would normally pray in an average week it, it's it's at my age it's a natural thing to think about it's become a more natural thing to think about um and so maybe but i don't think that's a big thing to think about I do think there are serious things which we can and should do there, but we'll come to that. Right. So what, what's the right balance then? Because uh, the, the misstep could be to say, this is a punishment from God, or it's a sign of the end, or it's a call to repent. And the answer to the repentance question, I think is sort of yes and no, because what, what yeah. would Job say to that, for example? Well, uh, yes, and exactly. And at the same time, God is calling all people everywhere to repent. So how of course, think about of that? Course. Well, uh, th that, that takes me to, um, I mean, the very interesting fact, when you look at the Old Testament, yes, a lot of bad things happen which are directly traced to the fact that the people had sinned in some way. But it's very interesting that the, the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, at no point does somebody say, oh, this is because Jacob and his sons were actually sinners, they needed, the whole family needed to go there. It's, and, and Passover is never seen as a release from sin and its results. Um, this is just something that happens. This stuff happens and God will free his, his people from that slavery. But it's not a forgiveness thing at that point. Now, there's a similar thing in the New Testament. Um, when uh, uh, in Acts chapter 11, 
when there's a famine is going to come upon the whole of the Middle East. And, and there were famines quite regularly. We know this from secular historians of the time. And the prophet Agabus stands up in Antioch and says, there's going to be a famine. And the church in Antioch does not immediately say, oh, this is calling us to repent, or it's calling these wicked people down the road to repent. Nor do they say, oh, this is a sign that the Lord's coming back. And they believe that the Lord might come back at any time, clearly, but that's not how they construe it at all. They say, who's going to be at special need in the middle of this? What can we do to help? And who should we send to take the money? And so there's a sense... and. When I first thought that line of thought through, I thought somebody's going to say, oh, you're forgetting God in all of this. And the answer is no. Within the New Testament, as in John 9, when Jesus says the works of God will be shown in him, and then it turns out to be the works of Jesus himself. Um, so now God is at work by his spirit in and through the church. And so the theological answer, not a pragmatic it is pragmatic, but it's also theological, is to say, as the people of God, prayerfully, what can we do to help, and how are we going to do it, and let's make the actual plans and, and get on with it. And, and I was reflecting on that, because there obviously is a call to repent in the New Testament, and uh, I was thinking about it particularly in terms of Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens. Now, we know that roughly 100 years before Paul was in Athens, the city of Athens had been destroyed by the Romans because Athens had backed the wrong side in a war and Rome had come in and flattened the place as it did to Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, Paul could have said, don't you remember when God flattened your city? That was calling you to repent. Or maybe there were other things, famines and, and, and plagues and so on. The great plague of the 5th century BC when Pericles died. You know, they, they, had, they had these things. Um, Paul doesn't say that. Paul draws all of those onto the single sign, which is Jesus himself. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will put the world right, judge the world by a man whom he's appointed, and he's given assurance of that by raising him from the dead. Paul says this knowing perfectly well. They're going to laugh at him because, because of course, they would. They know perfectly well dead people don't rise. But this actually is the message. There has now been one sign. And here's a really important theological point. I, I feel it's it's a sort of Bartian point, really, um, that if we try to create a call to repentance out of something other than Jesus now, now that we've had the revelation of Jesus, it's as though we're saying, well, yeah, we know about Jesus, people know that story, but now we need an extra oomph to get us going. And the answer is, uh-uh, no, you don't do theology that way. You don't do good theology by going round the back of the incarnate son. Um, Hebrews says, in former times, God spoke to us by the prophet, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through a son. And it seems to me, therefore, um, that, that's the point at which the church has to say yes, and what Jesus does by his spirit is what we are struggling to do to be obedient through the spirit. So we are not doing something other than what God is doing through Jesus, because it is the life of Jesus that is visible when the church is active in the community and bringing healing and hope and so on. Anyway, that's that's the line of thought I've been exploring. Right. And so if, if we're going to uh, clear our minds of some of the confusion and, and be uh, a little bit more focused in terms of 
of how to interpret the moment in which we're in. It seems that we, we have to make sure that, that Jesus is the starting point, the foundation, yeah. as well as the end, that, that everything yeah. Is, yeah. is interpreted in, in his light. And if that's the case, then uh, how, how should we look at uh, some of the Old Testament prophets? You mentioned someone had mentioned Amos to you. One, one of the things that you hear often in America is people will quote Second Chronicles chapter 7, and the idea is that if we... If, we if my people turn back, Lord, then, yeah. Then he will oh. give the land. And uh, uh, it, it seems to me that... Uh, we we have trouble uh, understanding how to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and yeah. then apply it to our own situation. So, what advice would you have for that? Right. I mean, I, I want to say it's always good for people individually or on a large scale to repent. Yeah. I, I have rather wished that our church leaders in Britain would have put out a call to prayer, not specifically necessarily a call to repent because i think that that might have given the wrong impression but certainly because it seems to me the, the proper approach in this situation is basically lament and intercession before anything else it's easy because because sorrow we don't do sorrow well we don't do grief well in the modern western world but the Bible is full of lament. There may, maybe a quarter to a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And I was reading a book recently which said, and I think it's absolutely right, that so many of the modern worship movements have been all happy and thanking God for everything he's done, and isn't it marvelous? And there's been very little lament. And pastorally mm -hmm. as well, if somebody comes to, a, to their prayer group and says, you know, my wife and I have just had this horrible thing happen to us, et cetera, et cetera, there'll be a pause and then somebody may blunder in and say, well, never mind, because God works all things together for good or something. And you think, no, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is we will pause and we will read one of these great Psalms, Psalm 44 or something, and, and we will just hold on to this brother and sister in the, in the love of God. And I think globally, that's what we're called to do. Because again and again, in those Psalms of lament, it's only after the lament, think of Psalm 22, you get 20 odd verses of lament, and then and only then something new happens. And sometimes the new thing doesn't happen. In Psalm 88, we're just left in the dark. But if new, thing, if new lessons are going to be learned, they may well emerge from lament, uh, rather than from an instant rushing for a solution, for a judgment, for a blame game, or whatever it is. And as I say, because we're not good at lamenting, um, this may be a hard lesson for us to learn. And particularly, I think, there are some theologians, well-meaning theologians, but I think it's a sort of rationalism, who say, well, God is in control. We know God's in control. So if this has happened, it must be what God wanted. Therefore, we, his people, must be able to deduce what's going on. And I want to say, I I I'm sorry, you need to go read Romans 8. This is just not how it works. We'll maybe come back to Romans 8 in a minute. So I think restraint is the first order of the day with lament then within that and maybe disciplined lament day by day, taking those psalms, taking lamentations. Obviously, lamentations recognizes that Jerusalem has been uh, destroyed by the Babylonians because Jerusalem had sinned. Lamentations doesn't try to hide that. But nevertheless, the city is empty. The babies are hanging at the breast, unable to get any food. Was it their fault? What's this all about? 
that there is a, a, a sorrow which is overwhelming much more than just, oh, these people did these wrong things, therefore God did that. And I think it's perfectly appropriate to have a kind of a prayer of unknowing, which is a prayer of lament. Right, and that was one of the uh, most important things that I got out of the article that you published in Time Magazine. And it was a poignant uh, thing to say that the Christian vocation in a time like this uh, includes lament and does not necessarily include having to explain everything. Right, uh, right. And yet I, I think that that's hard for some people to hear because of what you said earlier about uh, God's sovereignty. We want to believe that God is sovereign and, and in control. Uh, we, we talk about the coronavirus as a kind of black swan event, a improbable event that has severe consequences. Nobody saw it coming, although we think maybe we should have uh, yeah. retrospectively in hindsight. Uh, but as Christians, we believe that there are no black swan events for God. Nothing takes God by a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so how, do we, how do we hold those things in, in tension? This, uh, is, this is really important, isn't it? Um, I think of two passages in the Old Testament, one in Genesis where, uh, the Genesis 6, um, God saw what humans were up to in the post-Cain period. And it grieved God to his heart. It's very interesting. I was checking this out in the Hebrew and the Greek. And, and the Hebrew is very clear. It grieved God alev to his heart. The Septuagint is obviously worried about the idea of God being grieved to his heart. So it just says, so God thought about it. <laughs> and, and, and it's as though the Septuagint is asking the same questions that people are today. Surely God is basically in, in, in control. He shouldn't be suffering grief. and. God doesn't have a, a, an emotional heart. And the Hebrew text, I think, says, oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> don't, don't fool yourself. Don't get too rationalistic. And the other passage is something which Jeremiah says twice, actually, where he's talking about child sacrifice, where um, child sacrifice was forgiven, was forbidden, but the Israelites, astonishingly, not only did it, but they built up special high places to be places where they would go and offer their sons and their daughters to Moloch. Now, um, I, I simply, I can't get my head around that. Um, but Jeremiah says God couldn't get his head around it either, because God says twice in Jeremiah, I, I never told you to do that. In fact, it never came into my mind. And again, the Hebrew word is heart. God never even imagined it. God never had a bad dream one night and thought they would do it. Um, and so the idea, oh, well, he's sovereign, so he must have known this was going to be, is this is a slide towards stoicism. And it's a slide away from what you see in the Gospels. I, I was having this discussion with my dear wife, Maggie, who you know well, um, and uh, Maggie was just glancing at a, a passage that I'd written. And she said, you're talking about God being in control. And I said, well, um, the whole point is that in Jesus, the very notion of control is radically redefined. And she said, I don't think you should even say the word control, because she said, God, God isn't a controller like that. And I, I think she's absolutely right. But now Jesus, his whole theme is the kingdom of God, which is about the sovereignty of God. But he's constantly saying, let me tell you what the sovereignty of God is like. And he's having a party with all the wrong people and he's healing a leper and he's touching a corpse and he's doing this and he's doing that. And ultimately he goes off and gets crucified. And it's as though the whole time he's saying, 
this is what it looks like when God's in control. Uh, how does that work? And somehow the whole New Testament stands the idea of divine control on its head. And this is why I was talking with friends the other night about this. The famous verse in Romans 8.28, one of the first verses I learned when I was a very young Christian, in the King James Version, it's, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Now there's a problem because the Greek text has some, some manuscripts have um, the word God in there, that God works all things together for good, which I think is the right reading. Um, but it's also the word working together, it ties Romans 8.28 much more closely to Romans 8, 18 to 27, which ends up with the spirit groaning inarticulately within us as we groan in a prayer of unknown. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. And in Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says that even the Holy Spirit doesn't have words to speak at this moment. And if you slide across to 828 and say, never mind, God's in control, then you're just going for stoicism. Instead, I think you have to translate 828. And it's a good translation of the Greek. We know that in all things, God works with those who love him. And it's working with, synergy, with then the dative for those who love him, who are then called according to his purpose. Because part of the purpose for which we're called is not to be fellow controllers sitting upstairs running the world, but to be fellow grievers, fellow groaners, people who share the suffering of Jesus, as Paul says in that passage, so that the glory may come through. That is the paradox of it. And it would be a real... Oh, a shame in terms of our appropriation of scripture if we use this as a way of jumping back into a God's in charge so we don't need to worry thing. It's, no, the in chargeness of God is shaped by Jesus on the cross, and that cruciform shape is given to us in the spirit to be our prayer of unknowing, our prayer of groaning, of tears, where we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I, I have thought in the last week's and I haven't done it yet, but I maybe I will. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of churches in Oxford, and probably more churches per square mile than almost anywhere else. Uh, one of these days, we're allowed to go out and take exercise each day. One of these days, I may just go for a prayer walk around some of those churches and just grieve that they are not at the moment alive with the praise of God. Although I am grateful that at the same time, Jesus is not locked in those churches. Jesus is out and about doing all sorts of things in the community. But there is a time for grief, for just holding on to the pain in the presence of God. And that's what I think we're called to be doing right now. Right. And one of the things that you had shared with me previously is that uh, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is, is showing us the way in which... Yeah. God's sovereignty and control and care for us comes together with his own lamentation and grief. And again, if, if we're going to be focused on Jesus in terms of understanding our unique moment, it seems like that, that's a good place for us to go in order to see that's, how these that's come absolutely together. right. I was reflecting on that recently because you know the beloved Japanese artist Makoto Fujimura. And Makoto has... Hmm? A good Sorry? Friend, both of ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mako has recently written a book. Um, ah, I'm losing its title, but it's published by, by Yale University Press. And uh, it's on uh, what it is to be an artist, what it is to be making. I think it's a theology of making. Um, 
and in there he uses um, the scene in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus uh, very, very powerfully in terms of what Jesus is doing. And so I was reflecting on that when I was reading Mako's work. And then when I came to be thinking about these issues, it's fascinating because there's a sense in which Jesus is in control. He's down by the Jordan and he hears word that Lazarus is sick and then that he's died and he stays where he is. And he's obviously praying. And John wants us to join the dots later on in the chapter because when Jesus comes to the tomb and Martha says, you can't take the stone away because there'll be a smell. He's been in there three or four days. Um, and Jesus says, take the stone away. And then he says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. It's one of those amazing moments. This is before he calls Lazarus. And I think it must be that Jesus has prayed that Lazarus' body will not decompose. That's a big prayer. And so... Jesus is in control prayerfully, but when he arrives, he lets Mary and Martha go after him. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and, and the crowd are saying, he opened the eyes of the blind. Surely he could have stopped his friend from dying. And Jesus weeps. Jesus goes to the place of tears and joins in. He doesn't say, no, it's all all right, just trust God, bang, there it is. I mean, he does say some things like this, I am the resurrection, but he draws the trust onto himself. I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's through the prayer and through the tears together that the new thing happens. I, I find that hugely powerful, and I think John intends that to be the climax of the first, first half of his gospel. From then on, we're into Jerusalem and the whole of the second half unfolds. Um, so, so then I want to say, John's Gospel is probably the clearest place in the New Testament that when we're looking at Jesus, we are looking at God incarnate. Uh, God, the idea of God incarnate is huge and extraordinary and massive. But as John tells that story, he doesn't say, by the way, at this point, Jesus stops being God incarnate and just becomes an ordinary human being. He just says, Jesus burst into tears. And this is the word made flesh who burst into tears. This is God's second self who bursts into tears. Um, so it's no surprise to me then that we get Romans 8 with the spirit groaning with inarticulate groanings. Even though God remains in the redefined sense sovereign, God's sovereignty has worked out through the pain of the world, which becomes God's own pain through incarnation and through the spirit. I don't know that I can say it any better than that. Yeah, that's, perfect. that's perfect. Well, uh, in, in addition uh, to the, the lamentation and the grief, uh, I think there is a, a place for action. And, and in some places, that is the critique of the church. Well, we shouldn't just be lamenting the fact that our churches are closed or we can't have our services, uh, we should be out there doing something about all this. And uh, one of the first messages that I gave when the coronavirus hit the, the States was about how this is an opportunity for Christians to display both courage and love. And I pointed our people back to the ways in which early Christians dealt with even more ravaging epidemics in the second and third centuries and how in many cases, they, they nursed and cared for the sick and dying, not only within their own ranks, but 
their their neighbors uh, throughout the city. And while the pagan response may have been to throw out their own relatives to die in the streets alone, uh, the Christians cared for their sick and the sick of others. And in many cases, uh, transferred the sickness to themselves and, and died in the place of those that they sought to care for. And this, of course, is one of the great reasons that many uh, were attracted to Christianity in those early centuries. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, Rodney Clark writes this up, as you know, in The Rise of Christianity, in chapter four, and I was rereading that chapter just the other day. Yeah. Right. And uh, in, in response to that, uh, and specifically in response to that very chapter, one of the things that we've done at, at Central in New York uh, is first and foremost to encourage and support our doctors and nurses and emergency responders who are on the front lines in and out every day of the hospital wearing their full gear. Uh, but we're also trying to provide groceries and supplies for the elderly and the most vulnerable members of our congregation who might have underlying health issues. And, and, uh, and we're trying to do what we can to, to care for the poor and the homeless. Obviously, when uh, the governor tells everyone to stay at home, but you don't have a home, it's a little bit hard to follow that, that instruction. And so we've got a team of volunteers who, over the last several weeks now, have uh, made packed lunches that have been delivered to the homeless. I think we've made over 2,500 meals now at this point. Wonderful, uh, wonderful. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but that's, I think that's that's the, the yeah. question that, that people have is, well, what does appropriate Christian action look like in response to the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that's great. All the things that you describe, and I, I had an email from a friend who's in a parish in South London just before we came on air, um, who, who was saying how exciting it is that um, many members of her church are just springing into action, saying, well, we could do this. And so they've got, say, food banks and all sorts of things and um, phone calls with elderly people who are shut in. And they're having, they're having coffee mornings, but separately, um, where they're, they're kind of all making coffee in their own homes. And then they're either doing a Zoom or they're getting on the phone so that they are, they're being very creative, actually. And that's wonderful. But it seems to me we have to work from both ends. One of the things that the church is always called to do in John 16 is this whole business of the spirit convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, that could easily translate into the thing that I've just been saying we shouldn't do. Um, but sooner or later, the church needs both in itself and in praying for leaders in our countries, in our medical services, etc., and the church needs to be among those who are holding people's feet to the fire and saying, okay, what do we learn from this? How can we strengthen the World Health Organization? How can we make sure it's doing its job? How can we think about our own methods of food production, our own methods of, of, of illness research? And particularly, again, I had an email out of the blue from a young man who's a medical student in East Harlem in, uh, in New York and who's volunteering to help uh, in a place where most of the people uh, don't have any health insurance and so um, they have chronic health conditions already and are hugely vulnerable to the disease and and then they are the ones who are passing it on and often they don't live in a space where they can uh, keep safe space from other people so the disease is spreading really because these people are at the bottom of the pile and they're not being helped and so you know one needs to ask questions and i know this is a political hot potato in america obviously 
um, but one needs to ask questions about how how we supply what the whole society needs. So there are the macro big questions which have got to be asked, but we don't wait to until we've sorted them out before helping the people on the street or around the corner. So the church needs to be working at both levels simultaneously. And often it's the people who are working on the street at the local level who are most ready with the sharp questions for um, for the, 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 the big issues and, and, the, and the politicians and so on. And one of the things that I've been praying for, and I know this is slightly ambiguous, I was thinking about the time when Joseph finds himself suddenly whisked out of prison, giving advice to Pharaoh, and the next thing he's running the country. And he's collecting corn so that when the famine strikes, there won't be starvation. Now, um, it seems to me we need, maybe not one person, maybe but maybe new leadership to come forward of people with practical wisdom, of economic wisdom, etc., cetera, uh, let alone medical wisdom, to say, actually, there is a way through this and out the other side, because particularly what we're going to do after this is anybody's guess. There will be thousands of businesses that will have gone under and will not reappear and there will be other people, as you said before, trying to make a profit out of it, etc. We need wise leadership. I look at Britain, America, Europe at the moment. I'm not overly impressed with the level of leadership that we've got at different quarters. There are some shining lights, but there's also a lot of odd stuff there. We need urgently to pray for wise leaders. And maybe people in the churches need to pray for and support one another in speaking, in writing op-ed pieces, etc., etc., um, in showing that there will be a way forward and that it won't be a dog-eat-dog way forward where the strongest will elbow their way to the front and, again, the weakest will go to the wall. We must fight against that for all we can. So there are all these many things... But in the middle of it all, again, we are nothing if we're not a people of prayer. And we need to be figuring out ways to pray together as well as individually. Uh, it's interesting because I'm now, as you know, attached to Wycliffe Hall here in Oxford. And the term has started, but the hall is empty. Everyone is at home. And they've got the, the software called Teams where they do morning prayer every morning. And so you see all these little boxes with initials in, and here are all these people, they're showing up, and they're taking part in morning prayer. And that, that's, that's amazing, all in their different locations. Um, and uh, I'm going to be doing a course of lectures this, this term um, by that same method, method, as far as we know. So we're being creative, but it's tough. And we're all looking forward and praying for the day when we won't have to do this anymore. But Please, God, we will see through and, and be able to come out the other side. Right. right. Yeah, and we, like many churches, have obviously tried to be uh, very careful so that we don't uh, encourage the uh, the wrong kinds of behavior that are going to spread the virus. And, it, that, and that, That's exactly right. M Martin Luther has that wonderful quote, which people have been circulating on the Internet, where he says, I will do what I can. I will stay at my post. I will help. But I won't. I forget the exact words, but it means I won't be irresponsible. I won't go to places where I might do more harm than good. There's a danger of Christians wanting to say, oh, I'll do the heroic Jesus thing and come in and help even if it kills me. And the answer is, you may be carrying the disease, chum, um, so, and, and which is a real problem. You know, when I go sh supermarket shopping, as I do sneakily every two or three days, Maggie doesn't, but um, I, I put on gloves, I put on a mask, 
um, and I'm aware when I'm in the shop, this person could give me the virus, but I may be carrying it too without realizing it. And so there's a kind of a humility about that, which, which is quite difficult actually to live with. No, that's definitely right. And uh, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is uh, because of our inability to meet in person, we've, we've moved to online services. And as you say, I think that uh, we've actually seen rather, uh, rather significant increase in the number of people who have participated in our services because we're doing it online now. But there, there's also a sort of danger that lies there too, which is that uh, well, this is actually rather convenient and easy. Uh, it, it's nice to be able to go to church and not have to get out of your pajamas. And it's easier for the pastor, too. It's easier for the, for the pastor to, to lead one online services rather than three in a day, which is what a typical Sunday looks like for me. And so uh, obviously we're, we're hoping and praying that we'll be able to meet in person to, to worship and gather together again soon. But one question I have for you is why do you think that's so important? Why is it that we believe in an embodied faith? Why is meeting together as a body so significant? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that you've talked about at Central many times before is the importance of sacred space. Uh, and uh, why should we hope to be worshiping again in our beautiful sanctuary as opposed to uh, just worshiping together from our sofas? Yes, yes. It is a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's possible, and in my tradition it does sometimes happen, for people to become so attached to the buildings that the building becomes an idol, and then they think they can't worship unless they're in this building, right. uh, or they can't worship unless they've got all the kit and, and an altar and all the bits and pieces. And I, I understand that. I mean, I like bits and pieces myself, and, and so on. But um, So there, there is a, a sense of exile there, and I think we if we name it as exile that that does two things for us it it it, it it says yeah this is a bad place to be but we understand it exile does happen to the people of god from time to time but also it says it's not normal and the reason it's not normal is because of what it means to be a human being that whether you take this theologically or psychologically or anthropologically we are not meant to be alone we are not meant to be solos if you put somebody in a room in solitary confinement that's normally a punishment a very severe punishment um, and and all the analysis is that humans become who they really are in contact with one another and the contact is more than the more than what we're having now which is facial contact and and smiling and talking because it's it's also context and a thousand signals that we give about who we are with somebody else etc um and i mean purely pragmatically speaking as a pastor um maybe a third of the crucial little pastoral conversations that you have as you will know are either before or after the service when you're just hanging around and somebody says, oh, oh Tom, can we just have a word sometime this week about such and such? And you think, yep, okay, put it in the diary. That's going to happen far less when you're simply sitting in your room at home um, on a Zoom or, or whatever it is. Um, but, but it is something about uh, God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. The technology enables us to be kind of electronic Platonists. Um, you know, to, 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 to be in this detached space where we're not really there. Um, and uh, that's something we have to watch out for because it plays into a besetting ideological sin in Western culture. 
and uh, which which you see in all sorts of other spheres in in advertising and so on. Um, and so one of one of the great I mean, it's one of the great things about the Eucharist is that basically you can't do it by extension, or you shouldn't do it by extension. It, that's not, it's not meant to be like that. And I don't think anyone's quite thought this through in the present moment. You know, we have services going on where you get a priest or a bishop with maybe one other person in the room, because in our tradition, you're not supposed to do it totally privately. Celebrating the Eucharist, breaking bread, pouring out wine, sharing it with just two of them. And I think around the country, there are some people innocently putting a piece of bread and a cup of wine in front of the screen and treating it as though they're in church. Now, that's not a good idea. That really isn't. Um, we are one bread, one body, one family people. And that unity, ah, oh, that is so important. Well, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I, think, I do think it's a really important thing for us to think through. And if this joggles us into thinking that sort of thing through, well, okay, maybe we need that. I was recently reminded of uh, a question that C.S. Lewis responded to, which I think is contained in that uh, God of the Dock collection of essays, uh, where he was asked by someone, why do I need to go to church at all? Why can't I just worship God on my own from my living room? And, uh, and he said that, uh, well, the, the nearest thing you get to a direct command of the New Testament is that you're obligated to take the sacrament and you've got to go to church to do it. There's no other way <laughs> to follow that command. So if there's one reason to go yeah. back to church again, that's, that's a good one, is uh, yeah. so that we can yeah. celebrate Eucharist again. And, and part of the whole point, as in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, is that it is about the church as a family. Uh, and, and a family characteristically meets at a meal table. Um, and this isn't just a vague analogy. <laughs> it, it, it is who we are. And Jesus says, well, two or three gather in my name. Um, I'm sure that he would be quite happy to say, if it has to be electronically on a screen, well, okay, Jesus will show up here too. He's God. Um, but that's not the norm. And I think that is to do with our being embodied selves and the body being a good God-given thing, which is to be raised from the dead into the new physicality of God's new world. And the Eucharist points towards that and every step away from that into a virtual reality is as i say in danger of producing a sort of e-platonism which i will resist <laughs> me too well let me ask you one final question tom uh we we talked about how uh it's probably not a jesus-centered way to interpret this moment in history as as a punishment or as a sign of the end or even uh, a call from God to repent. Although at the same time, uh, God of course could use all kinds of events to alert us to the things that we need to see but might be tempted to ignore. And I think there's a very good chance that, that someone could uh, click onto this video uh, because they are searching for answers. Maybe they do feel like uh, uh, God has gotten their attention because of what they're experiencing right now and they're struggling and and uh, reaching out to find him and, and to, to find some comfort uh, in the midst of this crisis. And so what, what words of comfort or, or consolation would you offer to a person in that kind of a position right now? I would say, as we read the stories of Jesus, we don't see somebody who is detached from the pain of the world. We see somebody who is going right to the heart 
of where the world is in its worst pain and taking it upon himself. And I would say to somebody in that position, if you can find a Bible, read Psalm 23, uh, read Romans chapter 8, and read and say the Lord's Prayer. Those are very simple, but actually each one of them has a profundity, and I think especially the Lord's Prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer is something that in my tradition every child learns, but you never grow out of it. It's, it's, waiting, it's got depths which are waiting for us. And I think, particularly towards the end, don't bring us to a time of testing, but deliver us from evil. That's what we really want to pray, most of all at the moment. But in order to get to those points in the prayer, we also need to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done, for daily bread, and for forgiveness. And so if the prayer, please don't let us be overwhelmed by this, which comes at the end of that prayer. If that's going to mean anything, we need the earlier bits too. But I would anchor those with Psalm 23 and Romans 8. That's good. Uh, well, thank you, Tom. I'll close by uh, reading an excerpt from Psalm 43, but I want to thank you for taking this time uh, to thank speak you. with me and with all of our listeners as a Presbyterian. Always, always great. Always great but I'm, I'm very, very grateful to have you as my own personal bishop. So thank you for, for all your care for me and for my wife and family. And, uh, and, and I'm grateful that we can have this encouraging conversation together. Let, let me conclude our time by reading uh, Psalm 43, verses 3 through 5. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God.